0: Right, Our first scripture reading this morning is going to come from Ezekiel 18. It's going to be on page 705 of those Blue Pew Bibles. Uh, at, now at this point in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is giving some instructions and prophecy about the coming judgment of Jerusalem and Judah that would ultimately lead to their exile to Babylon in 586 B.C. So now you kind of know what's going on historically. And basically, Ezekiel is just given this sort of parable of the coming judgment, but then he wants to stop and give them something hopeful. Hopeful for them, hopeful for the next generation, and hopeful for everyone who will uh, repent of sin. So we're going to read Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 21. Prophet Ezekiel writes, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord Yahweh, where it's in all caps, that's the proper name of God, Uh, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered the treachery of which he is guilty, and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone, according to his ways, declares the Lord Yahweh. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord Yahweh. So turn live. Now we're going to turn over to 2 Peter 3. Now keep in mind what God has just said he wants and how he deals with sin as we turn to 2 Peter 3 and prepare to read verses 1 through 10, although in the sermon we're really going to focus on verses 1 through 7. Now, if you're visiting, we're near the end of a series. We've been preaching through both letters uh, of Peter to the church in Asia Minor. And we've been calling our series, uh, Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. And uh, today, we're going to delve pretty deeply into a subject that makes us Western people squirm quite a bit. Uh, But I want you to know it's meant to be an encouragement to God's people as they are in the minority in the world, as well as to be a warning and invitation to anyone. All are welcome. This is an invitation to anyone who will look to Jesus. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you or on your account not wishing that any should perish. That's what Ezekiel said. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All that I have read to you from the Old and New Testament is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, By your Holy Spirit, comfort us as we consider facing judgment. Encourage us as we consider handling scoffers. And show us this morning your grace, patience, and love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of people get very uncomfortable when it comes time to talk about the final judgment, including me. (laughs) And especially if you have a lot of non-Christian friends or family, it can be really uncomfortable. But Peter, in this passage, doesn't think of the final judgment as something to be avoided in conversation or worried that he's going to offend with. Rather, if anything, Peter takes the final judgment to be an encouragement for Christians. Something meant to comfort Christians in the face of hardship, and especially in the face of what Peter calls scoffers. Christians can face a lot of scoffers, right? Mockers, jeerers, hostile skeptics. I hope one's in the, I hope one's in the congregation today. That makes it more fun. Um, Right? Um, But here's the thing. Christians don't always respond well to scoffers. Often we're tempted to fight fire with fire, especially if we're sort of feeling tired or insecure. We just want to beat people down intellectually, if not physically. And Christians can look at the world of scoffers and people that don't like the Christian religion and start to feel pretty hopeless because of the doubters around us. Christians can get discouraged. Some of us, some of you are discouraged because you look at what's happening in the society around us, family values as you've known them, changing, unethical practices, being condoned by the government and society as though they were normal. And Christians can get disgruntled when Other Christians don't think clearly or use other than Christian tactics to just gain power and do things that are contradictory to the Bible. And I want to tell you, all those frustrations are legit. You should be frustrated with that stuff. Maybe even angry about it. Because both of those things lead to scoffers without and within. But this passage, 2 Peter 3 gives us hope in the face of all of that. And so we need this message of judgment today. You see, the hope we have in all of that is the hope of the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There are going to be scoffers, guys, but Jesus is returning to bring the judgment of purifying fire, and that's good news for us. Now, if you're a visitor today, you're like, ready to leave. Because that sounds really harsh. Hellfire and brimstone. Here we go. But listen, I I, want to talk to you, okay? I want to talk to you. I know a lot of people are troubled by the idea of a God of judgment. A God of wrath. And Christians, listen in. Because we need to talk about how to do better at talking about this with our other than Christian neighbors. Because I want everyone to hear what I'm going to say about hope in judgment and treating other people better as we consider the wrath of God, the wranglers against God, and the way of God. I want you to know, I thought about an alliteration for this sermon for like an hour, and Mike did that in 10 seconds. Anyway, first, the wrath of God. The wrath of God, friends, is real. Do not be mistaken. Now, hear me out, doubters. Please don't get up and leave. Like, just, just let's talk. The, the wrath of God is real, and you want it to be real. We all want it to be real. Allow me to demonstrate. Let's pick an evil in the world. Let's pick something that I think everyone will... Uh, agree on. Whether you're Christian, other than Christian, uh, Republican, Democrat, I think you're going to get on board with this. Child sex slavery is bad. I won't make you raise your hand if you're opposed to that, but I think we can agree on that. Child sex slavery is bad. And you want the people perpetrating those things to face justice. You want bad things to happen to those people so that those kids can be set free and find some sort of healing. Because if you know anything about sexual trauma and abuse, you know that there's frankly no price those evildoers can ever pay to make up for the damage they've done. Now, if you're like I used to be, you're going to be one of the scoffers of verse 4. And you're going to get lost in the weeds. You're going to say something like, well, if there's a God, why did he allow that stuff anyway? Where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, you adults. That's what I would say to Christians once upon a time. And you might also, like me, sort of make this emotional and illogical misstep into, well, God can't be real because that evil exists. But that assumes a lot of things you can't prove. For the intellectual among you, that involves a number of uh, epistemological, ethical, and ontological presuppositions. You're welcome, philosophers. Everyone else, let me tell you what I mean. The fact is, you can't prove what things ought to be through the scientific method, right? Uh, if there is no God, Who says people need to be punished for doing that sort of thing? In fact, I mean, it's just nature, isn't it? If there is no God. And yet you have this sense, a sense that does not make any sense if there is no God, that you want those people punished. We all do. And the Bible says they will be. In fact, I bet you want justice for far smaller things. Most of us hope that the person that, you know, cut us off in traffic or gossiped about us has bad things happen to them. Because any time we deal with any bad thing, we have this built-in sense of justice. Don't believe me? Spend time with a child for ten minutes. And eventually one of them will go, Hey, so-and-so did that, and that's not fair! You guys aren't that bad, but... Those are my kids over there. Right? But the point is, we are born with a sense that wrongdoers need punishment and wrongs need to be made right. And when it doesn't happen to think the way we think it ought to, we cry foul. We cry out for justice because we want to see it made right and we want to see somebody pay. And there's actually something righteous and good about that, by the way. Whether we like it or not, Whether we're willing to use this sort of language or not, we all want God's wrath to come down on evildoers. And if you are disturbed by the bad things you see in this world, I want to tell you, the Bible says wrongs will one day be made right and justice will be served at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Christians are comforted as we face those things. That's good news for all of us. However, you have been wronged, friend. Although I cannot tell you it will be the way you want it or in the time frame you want it, God will expose all and make all things right. I promise you. I promise. Maybe in better ways than you than you can even imagine right now. Because he's done it before. Peter recalls one of these times that God did that in verses 6 and 7. He says, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is calling back to a former judgment that we read about in the book of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. We call it Noah's flood, and it's not the first time it's come up in Peter's letter. He, he likes to use this as an example. <clears throat> On that day, the book of Genesis tells us, uh, humanity had become so wicked and corrupt that God was sad he had made humanity, so he wiped it out with a flood Saving only a few chosen people. Now, again, I'm just thinking about when I was an other-than-Christian person, I would immediately get distracted by whether it was a worldwide flood or a local flood or 5,000 or 50,000 years ago. Don't you all know anything? And I want to say, don't get distracted by that. Hear this. God saw evil and he did something about it, regardless of when or how he did it. Now, did he do what your I would have done if we were God? That's always a terrible question, by the way. Um, I I don't know. I'm going to say no because we're not God and we shouldn't be. But if God, because if God is really God, maybe He knows something we don't, and He does things the way they need to happen. So He may not. That means He may not let our circumstances go the way. We want. He may let our circumstances go the way they do because there's something good for us we don't understand. And the flood is something we can then look back at in the Bible and say, Lord, I don't understand everything you've done, but you have clearly demonstrated that you care about justice and that you will do something about evil because you have done something about evil in the past. And friends, when God does this, When he brings this second judgment, evil will be destroyed and ungodliness will be done away with forever. And all the things that have got you so wrapped up and worried right now will go away. And things will be made the way they're supposed to be. And only that which is good will remain in the renewed creation that is finally all that it was meant to be formed by God's Word. Isn't that good news, Christians? The coming judgment is the inauguration of creation finally being the paradise we all long for. That's beautiful. But it can only come through purifying fire. Maybe you hear that and you get nervous. If you're tender-hearted, if you're full of shame and guilt, nervousness about things like judgment, I want to remind you of the assurance of pardon we read. And I want to remind you of the Old Testament reading. God desires all people to be saved, and He has given Jesus Christ as a ransom for all, a payment for the price we owe for all our wrongdoing. As Peter wrote in verse 9, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. My friends, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if you want to have the coming judgment be an encouragement, rather than something that strikes fearing, if you want to know you won't be condemned when all is made right, then you're welcome. Come on in. Look to Jesus as your Savior. Know His love and fear no more. In Christ, judgment becomes encouragement because you know that you no longer have to fear judgment, but rather you just get the benefits of all things being made right. That's why Christians are excited and even happy about the day of judgment. Hallelujah. Right, Christians? Hallelujah! But some are still going to scoff at this, right? We've talked about the wrath of God, but some have heard all that all that stuff about wrath, and they still ridicule and scoff as wranglers against God. Now, the scoffers here in this passage seem to have some knowledge of the Old Testament, but they don't really understand or believe what God has done. Right, Peter says in verse 5 that these scoffers, mockers, and revilers deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, these scoffers seem to know this story, but they reject them. They deliberately, willfully refuse to believe the biblical truth because they just don't want it to be true. Everything being made the way it ought to be doesn't sound like good news to them. They won't really incredibly even consider this idea, but they reject it without consideration so that they can follow their own sinful desires. And that's going to be some in our society too. That's going to be the scoffers we deal with. How many do you know? Or maybe it's someone here, maybe it's you, that will just reject the biblical truth, not because they've really thought it through, but because it would be really inconvenient to believe that biblical truth. It would force them to change. It would make them have to do something different. It would cost them to believe the Bible. And so they won't believe what the Bible says because they don't want to do what the church says they have to. And so those people ridicule the church, they make fun of the Bible, and they make themselves feel superior to Christians so they don't actually have to consider whether or not Christianity is true. Whether it's secular scholars trying to convince us uh, that the Bible can't be trusted, or whether it's neighbors looking down their noses at, at, at us because of our silly superstitious beliefs, or whether, like these scoffers, they hear of judgment and laugh as they continue down the road of destruction, when you face these people, friends, and Christians, I'm talking to you, when we face these people, knowing that judgment is coming, and knowing that God desires all to be saved, rather than trying to win in some fight, my hope is that, knowing of judgment, we will default to grace and patience when it comes to scoffers because that's, what, that's how God is with scoffers how do I know? because I used to be one if God just brought judgment on me I'd already be in hell guys I hope that when we deal with scoffers we can have grace and patience rather than self-defense Bravado and beating them or one-upping them. In short, Christians, be nice to scoffers because judgment is coming. Remember, the reason judgment hasn't come yet is specifically because God may still be going to save some of those people. And you get to be a part of it, maybe. God still has work to do in you. There's still sin to repent of instead, you get time to turn, to change, and to receive reward in heaven. As Peter will say in verse 8, which pushes back against our impatience and desire to see wins or results or judgment right now, Peter says, do not overlook this fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Towards us. God is waiting on His judgment for the sake of many whom He intends to save and because He is still at work in us. Because God is so patient with us who were once His enemies through sin, so we ought to be patient even with those who persecute Wrong and scoff at us, friends. In 1 Peter, Peter talked about how to answer those who ask about a reason for the hope that is in us. And in the context, it seems that maybe he was talking about some scoffers there. And Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the Apostle Paul said something similar in his letter to the Colossians, saying, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what does that look like? Well, Let's read some more Bibles, shall we? How about Romans 12? And any of you that have been going to Sunday school regularly for a few years ought to know this passage really well by now, because we read it about once a month. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pastor Mike made y'all memorize this now. Do not be overcome by evil. Yes, you're all, you've all been shamed in the sermon now. You can fire me later. Um, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, to respond in this way, is to follow the way of God, okay? To respond this way is difficult because it means that as we face scoffers, as we are uncomfortable or maybe even rightly angry at scoffers, we have to remember the way of God all throughout. I don't know if you know this, but when emotions are running high, remembering useful things can be difficult, eh? As commentator, commentator, commentator Michael Green puts it, it is not sufficiently considered that men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. Hence, the reason in the first two verses of this passage, Peter uses the word remember three times, right? Uh, he says he is writing to remind, that they may be reminded and remember. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's saying, remember all I said in the first letter? Right? All that stuff about being born again to a living hope. All that stuff about... Jesus suffering for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that you might bring us to God. Remember the call to be holy. Remember the futile ways of your forefathers and how you've been freed from that and made stewards of God's grace. Remember that we told you there were going to be scoffers coming and that you need to expect them so that you could respond with grace. Do you remember all that? Remembering God's way of grace is difficult, but it changes us. Because remembering God's way of grace is a little like Disney's The Kid. I'm the only person that's seen this movie because no, there were no lights that came on. Okay, so in The Kid, Bruce Willis is this like type A, hyper-successful businessman consultant who is a perfectionist. And he loves no one but himself. And he is ready to correct anyone that has any flaw whatsoever with no grace and no tolerance for anything less than his version of perfection. And then his eight-year-old self gets transported through time and dropped on his 40-year-old doorstep. And uh, eight-year-old Bruce Willis was fat and pudgy, and nerdy, and bit his nails, and had all sorts of, you know, probably had B.O., but thank goodness it's not smell-o-vision, um, right? And Bruce Willis is horrified to remember who he was. Oh, he's so ashamed. He's ashamed of who he was because he was fat and cowardly and broken. And his mom had died tragically, and his angry father had taken his anger out on him and had no grace For anyone. And Bruce Willis said, I will not be an angry loser. I'll be an angry winner. He had internalized all his father's anger and all his own anger at himself for being a loser and he had vowed to become better and hold everyone else to the same standard. But in so doing, he lost his humanity. He lost grace. He became a ridiculer and a scoffer at anyone who believed in showing grace to others' flaws. But as he remembered who he once was, and time traveled back to the 1960s because it's a movie, um, right? He, he begins to face what he had been through and what he had become. And through remembering his own sin and pain and brokenness and weakness, he began to show grace to, him young, to his younger self. And he began to heal as a human being. He began to show grace to those around him. But he couldn't begin to show that sort of grace until he first knew that grace for himself. He couldn't do it as long as he didn't remember where he had come from and how much grace he had needed. Scoffers need grace to come to Christ just like we did. We remember what Jesus has done in His life, death, and resurrection to rescue us from the wrath of God so that we can show grace to other wranglers of God whom He may also save and bring in to the way of God. For those who know grace, the forgiveness of sins, and the message of God through the apostles, judgment becomes an encouragement. because It gives us hope. Because we know that through Jesus Christ, all will be put right, maybe in better ways than we can currently imagine, there will either be justice or there will be grace and forgiveness just like we have received. There will be purity and creation itself will be made better than we can currently fathom with no more suffering and no more scoffers. That's what Judgment Day gives us. That's paradise. Because of Judgment Day, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we who trust in Him We'll receive purifying without destruction. And that gives us glad hope for ourselves and for others too. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, show us Your grace. Show us our own need for grace. Show us where we've been scoffers and prepare us to face scoffers uh, when they come into our lives. Teach us how to show them grace and let us indeed see you bringing about righteousness and make us glad for the day of judgment to come when righteousness will reign. Your mercy will be known and your goodness and righteousness will also be known. Lord, send Jesus back soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.